come before as your people and bow down before you in worship and acknowledge you as the one who is over us. For what other God is there? There's no one else. Who else is, has all power? There's no one else. Who else is, is everywhere, in all places, fully? There's no one else. Who else knows all things? Who knows the stars of billions of light years away? It knows what is going on in our very thoughts at this moment. There is, there is no one else. There is no other God. And we thank you that we worship not only a supreme, all-powerful God, but we thank you for a God who is merciful, a God who dwells with those who are contrite, humble in heart. We thank you that uh, though you know and you truly know all of our sins, all of our failings. You know our deepest thoughts. You know the fears that we have. You know the times that we have failed you more so than we ourselves know. You know everything. And yet you love us. You love us through your Son, Jesus Christ. You don't merely overlook our sins. You have dealt with them, sending your Son to be that sacrifice for us upon that cross, that sacrifice that was sufficient once and for all, and so that our guilt is removed. And so, our Father, though our, our sins trouble us and humble us as they ought to do, and we, we at times despair of ever being able to change, all the more that we give you thanks and confess Jesus Christ, our Messiah, who is our priest, who is our King, the Anointed One, who has dealt with our sins. That you look not upon our sins, you look upon His righteousness that covers us. But we give you thanks and praise for our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, our Father, for this world and that does not know Christ, does not know this forgiveness, that dwells in darkness, and we pray for the light of the gospel to go forth in this world. We thank you for those whom you have sent from their homes into different places of this world. You have sent those who live in other parts of the world who have even come to this country to spread the news of Jesus Christ. We pray for those who, in particular, that you have given us the joy to support. We pray for David and Aaron Purvis, along with their two children. Thank you for their work in Kiev, Ukraine. Uh, Pray for the fruitfulness as they work on the building of two churches there, of Liberty Church and Bashova Gorda. Uh, We pray for the English camps, that these churches will be running, that they will be used mightily uh, to bring not only children, but adults as well, into your kingdom. Our Father, we pray for the general assembly of our denomination that uh, will begin uh, tomorrow. Pray for safe traveling uh, for all of the ministers, the elders, all who are traveling uh, to that assembly in Chattanooga. Pray for their safety. 
pray that Jesus Christ will be honored in those deliberations, and that because of decisions that are made there, because of people meeting uh, together, uh, there will be great fruit and furthering of the, the labors for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our Father, we um, pray as well for uh, the, our new senior minister who will be coming in just about a month. And we uh, pray uh, for him, for Reverend Smith and for his family and pray for uh, them and their transition that they're making and that uh, they would be granted uh, safe travels as well uh, in their move here. And pray for uh, their church that they are leaving, that you may uphold that congregation. But we pray all the more that you would be preparing him uh, as he comes and in response to your call uh, to minister in this church. Our Father, we uh, pray uh, for ourselves. Now, you know each one of us who is in this sanctuary. You know what we are facing. You know what we will face that we may not know of. You know the, uh, the troubles that are in our hearts. You know our fears. You know our joys. You know our, our hopes. And all the more that we pray that as, as we have come to worship you, that you all the more to pour out your blessing upon us. We, we need to be fed. We pray that you would feed us with your word. pray that you would feed us and bless us with the, the sacrament, all of which is to point to Jesus Christ and to that gospel. Lift us up as we need it. Open our, not only our ears, but our minds to understand your word we may go forth all the more, understanding the riches that we have in Jesus Christ and desirous to follow our Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, our uh, scripture of our text uh, this morning is Isaiah 61, verses uh, 1 through 3. Now, you can... Find that in the, uh, the Bibles and hope that you would use those if you do not have your own Bibles, but you'll also see the text as an insert in your bulletin as well, and you can follow along through that means. And we have, um, we have been taking a journey. We've been um, traveling along the road to Emmaus and listening in on the conversation that Jesus is having with two of his disciples. This is the, the day of the resurrection. Jesus has, has risen from the dead. The disciples, it is not yet registered into their brains, even know that the tomb was empty. They're walking along Jesus. They don't even know that it is Jesus. They're walking along with him. And, they, you know, he's asked them what's going on. And he said, and they've said, well, you know, we, we, this is the one whom we had hoped was going to be the one to redeem Israel. But obviously it's not, you know, because he... He died on the cross, and that's when Jesus says, you know, basically, you foolish ones, let me explain it to you. And so he takes them through the scriptures, what we would know as the Old Testament, goes through it explaining, here's how it's pointing to Jesus Christ and to the work uh, that I have done. Starts probably back in Genesis. He says there, you know, that... A prophecy of, of when uh, God is saying to the serpent that Eve is going to have an offspring. And that offspring is going to bruise Satan's head. 
That's the Messiah. Or when you look to the redemption that was, that was uh, wrought in, in Egypt and, and the people were led out of, of bondage and, and uh, when they were led out of Babylon and, and they looked for another redeemer to come. That's what Jesus Christ has done. Okay. When, when you look at the, the sacrificial system and the Day of Atonement and those sacrifices are made to atone for sins. That's what was happening on the cross. Okay. When you, you have looked for all of these years for this king who is going to, to come and, and deliver you, Jesus Christ is that king. He is that priest who is opening the way for you into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God. So we're assuming they're getting near Emmaus now. We're going to have to wrap it up, and well, we're going to look at the word of Messiah itself. The people have always been looking for a Messiah. Well, what does that name itself mean? Where does it come from? How did it get associated with the one whom Israel was going to place their hope in? Now, if you were to, to look in a concordance, if you were to peruse through your Bibles, you're not going to find the word Messiah in the Old Testament. You'll only find it a couple of times in the New Testament. Now, however, if you had your Hebrew Bibles, you would have found it a number of times in the Old Testament Scriptures. Every time you came across that word anointed or to anoint, in Hebrew, that is Messiah. Or, in the New Testament, every time you read the name Messiah, Christ. That is the Greek translation of Messiah. So that's where the term is coming from then. So with that in mind, let me, let me read our text. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me, that's that Messiah, to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, toil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. He picked up that word in verse 1. The Lord anointed me. Literally, is the Lord Messiah, me. It's the form of the word Messiah. And it's this passage in Isaiah that brings to a pinnacle the, the expectations and the hope of the Jewish people of the Messiah, the anointed one who is going to redeem Israel. That's what the disciples were saying. We had hoped He was that Messiah who was going to redeem Israel. So when and where did anointed, that term, get kind of wrapped up in this hope form deliverer? How did it become the identifying title for the Jewish people? Well, the word first appears way back in Genesis, chapter 31, verse 13. Jacob has has left his home. He's gone out. Uh, He's trying to escape uh, Esau. And remember, he's out in the wilderness. He falls asleep. He has a dream. 
you know, and there's the angels going up and down on this ladder. He wakes up. He's been sleeping on a rock. Maybe that's why he's, he's having all these dreams. But he, he gets up. He realizes, I'm in this holy place. He anoints the, uh, the rock with oil. He, what he's doing is he's consecrating that stone. Okay? He's setting it apart. He's saying, this is holy. Now, we're not going to come across that term again till we move into Exodus. The people have passed through the Red Sea. They've come to Mount Sinai. God's given the, the Ten Commandments to Moses. And then he starts to give Moses instructions about the tabernacle, about the priesthood, and, and all of those things. And in the instructions are this. Aaron and his sons, the priests, are to be anointed with oil. Okay. And then what's happening is then that they are consecrated for holy service to the Lord. And then there are all the items of the, of the tabernacle. All of those items, those objects, are again anointed with oil, consecrating them, setting them apart. So, consecration, setting apart, that's the operating concept here with the Messiah. And specifically in the consecrating of the priest or the object using the tabernacle of God. Okay. All right. So later, as you continue along in the, in the Old Testament, you'll see anointing being used in a slightly different way. And the change is first seen in, in the prayer of Hannah. Do you remember? Hannah was the mother of Samuel. And she was bare and she prayed to God and God finally granted her uh, Samuel, and she has Samuel, and then she gives this prayer. And let me read the, the end of the prayer. She says, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now, the odd part about this prayer is that Israel doesn't have a king yet. Okay. But Hannah's looking to the future. She's actually prophesying here that someday a king will sit on the throne of Israel and he will be called God's anointed. He will be called Messiah. Now, the king would have been anointed with oil, as was the priest. But the primary concept here when you put anointing with a king, is that he is chosen by God. The anointed one is the chosen one. And so God chose Saul to be the first king. Then he chose David to be the the second king. He chooses the lineage of David to be on the throne, and all of those kings following would be called the anointed. Indeed, even many of those kings of the northern kingdom, you know, really were not following at God at all. God at times specifically would have a, prop, a prophet go and anoint that king because God had chosen that individual. So to summarize so far where we come here, a Messiah is an anointed one. Okay? He is one who is consecrated as is a priest for holy service. Or he is one who is chosen, as is a king, to serve God's purposes and to serve as his representative. Now, there are two Old Testament texts 
that lead God's people to specifically equate this anointed one, this term Messiah, with the Messiah, the anointed one, that they're all looking forward to coming. The first you've already read in Psalm 2 in our responsive reading. Let me read again just the opening verses here. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth shut themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So this anointed, as the psalm goes on to say further down, will be called God's son. The Lord says, you shall be my son. And furthermore, all the nations will be subjected to him. And so the Jews, especially after the exile, you know, after they come back from Babylon and maybe some from Assyria, they look to this psalm as prophesying the Messiah, the anointed one who's going to come. And he's not only going to deliver them from, from bondage to other nations, He's going to make those nations subject to them. They're going to have an empire themselves. Now, we then come to the passage in Isaiah that I had read in chapter 61. And it eloquently presents the Messiah who, who under the power of the Holy Spirit, what is he going to do? He's going to deliver his people from their woes. He is going to establish them in righteousness. Now, This is the only time in Isaiah that particular word anointed is used for the Messiah. He actually uses it another time, and he uses it for for Cyrus, the emperor who came and actually allowed the people to go back to Jerusalem. But the hope of the Messiah, the anointed one, is actually throughout Isaiah because the Messiah... In Isaiah is also that servant of the Lord that is spoken of many times in Isaiah. The Messiah is, so let me read from Isaiah 42, verse 1. It quotes God as saying, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth, just, he will bring forth justice to the nations. So the Messiah is the one who is chosen by God. He's anointed by the Holy Spirit. He is consecrated for holy service. He's chosen to serve God as the servant king of God's people. He's going to deliver them. He's going to rule over them. And indeed, his rule is going to stretch beyond Israel to all the nations. So the people are reading this. And they're saying, yes, we're going to have a conquering king. And he's going to establish the kingdom of God in in righteousness. And boy, we can't wait till he gets here. We're, We're longing for that. That's what they're looking for. That's what these two disciples were looking for. And so let's go back to that that walk on the Emmaus Road. And Jesus is saying to those disciples, the Messiah has come. And he has done and is doing this work. You who who said that you were hoping he's the one who redeemed Israel, Jesus has done that. 
Your master did do that. He's the true servant king. Remember what he told you? This is from Mark 10:45. For even a son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. Give his life as a ransom for, for many. That's how I redeemed Israel. Up there on the cross. I gave my life as a ransom. That's what the word redemption means. And he's saying, furthermore, Jesus is the chosen one. The one who was anointed by the Holy Spirit. Now, maybe the disciples weren't around at that time, but perhaps they would have heard of him. That actually took place. Let me read it to you from Mark 1, verses 10 and 11. When Jesus came up out of the water, he's being baptized by John. Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. He's being anointed by the Holy Spirit. That's the Spirit descending upon him. God the Father speaks to him. And God the Father alludes to Psalm 2 and to Isaiah 42 that I've read to you. When he says, you are my beloved son, he's harking back to Psalm 2 verse 7, where it reads, the Lord said to me, you are my son. And then when he says, with you I am well pleased, he's alluding back to Isaiah 42.1, where it reads, my chosen in whom my soul delights. Here's the Messiah. Now, Jesus certainly understood the significance of his baptism. In one of his first acts of ministry, he comes back to his hometown of Nazareth, and uh, he goes to synagogue on it's the Sabbath day. He sits there, and he, uh, well, let me read the story to you. This is from Luke 4, 16 to 21. Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. So he he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And he reads our text. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. There the preacher, he stands up to read, and then when he's going to preach, he actually sits down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's read the text, and he is saying to them, Here I am. I am the anointed one. I am the Messiah that Isaiah has prophesied about. Now, by the way, it didn't go too well. They, They tried to throw him off a cliff. Uh, so I'll be careful myself not to do that in my hometown. But um, anyhow, later, his cousin, John the Baptist. You know, John has the, the 
commission to go and prepare the way for Jesus, John the Baptist starts to have doubts about him. Because Jesus, he's not fulfilling the expectations of the Messiah that he and his fellow Jews would have understood. So he sends his own disciples to check up on Jesus, and here's how Jesus answers. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Leopards are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And Jesus has in mind, he has in mind Isaiah 61, He has other passages in Isaiah in mind as well, Isaiah 35, 5 through 6, that that speak of these things that, that Jesus is doing. So Jesus, whom these two disciples had followed, or or Jesus, whom these two disciples followed, he's saying, look, I have been fulfilling the prophecies of the Messiah before your very eyes. And at no other time was Jesus more clearly fulfilling these prophecies than when he was on the cross. See, that's when the disciples said he's on the cross. That means that's not him. No, it's when I'm on the cross. That's when I'm really carrying out that work. Because, look, there's another Isaiah prophecy about the servant of the Lord whom these disciples and their Jewish kin were just overlooking. I don't know how they were explaining it. It's Isaiah 53, the the chapter that depicts the servant bearing the sins of the people. Let me just read a couple of verses from there. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus was the Messiah consecrated to be a holy priest and a holy sacrifice for Israel's sin. Jesus was the Messiah chosen to be the king who redeemed his people out of bondage and would rule over them. And then they come to Emmaus. But what about us now? Well, here's what Jesus would say to us. We also are Israel. We who are Abraham's children by faith. Jesus is not just the Messiah of the Jewish people. He's our Messiah as well, of both Jew and Gentile. And we, we proclaim this every time we speak of Jesus Christ. Christ is Messiah. We're testifying that he's ours. And we look at Isaiah 61 again. We need to understand we are the poor who have received the good news of the gospel. We are the brokenhearted, whose wounds have been bound by Christ's healing power. We are the captives, who have been set free from the bondage of of sin and judgment. We have heard the Lord's favor pronounced to us. And if we look back to Psalm 2, we're the Gentiles who were once in rebellion against the Son, but who now take refuge in him. 
We are the nations that were in darkness, but we have received the light of the nations. For contrary to what the Jewish people were anticipating at that time, at Jesus' time, he was going to become the Messiah for all the world, for all who would believe on his name. All nations, all tongues would confess him to being Jesus Christ, Jesus Messiah. Because all people are held in bondage to sin. And all people need to be deli- that deliverance that only he can provide. And so when we look back to the scriptures of the Old Testament, we're reading our story. Our head, Adam, fell. He fell through the wiles of Satan, and we need that offspring of Eve who bruises the head of Satan. We need the same Redeemer who led Israel out of Egypt. We need that same Redeemer to lead us out of bondage and into the promised land of eternal life. We need to look back at those, those sacrifices and realize that's what we need. That's what we need to make atonement for our sins. We cannot cleanse ourselves. That we need that sacrifice whose blood propitiated the judgment, appeased the wrath of God that was meant for us. And it removes our sin. And when he sent that goat out on the Day of Atonement to say, your sins are gone forever, we need that as well. Our sins are gone forever. We need the priest king who wins our battle and who opens the way for us into the presence of God. We, all of us, need the anointed one, the Messiah. And so what we need to be doing, we need to be, hey, we need to be reading the Old Testament with eyes that are looking for our Redeemer and understanding his work. I mean, that's the primary reason actually behind this series, to help you learn how to read the Old Testament. I mean, other than the Psalms, some of you like the Proverbs, and, you know, we might have a few stories we pull out here and there that, that we like. Most part, we kind of avoid just reading at least extensively the Old Testament. I mean, it seems incomprehensible. It's hard to figure out, and... And that could be a little boring. I mean, anybody, anybody up for a good Bible story? I mean, a good Bible study on Leviticus? And waiting through all of that? But if we look for our Messiah, for Jesus Christ, that's when we'll have a better hope of actually making sense of the Scriptures and even enjoying even some of those dull parts. Because if we went to a Leviticus, for example, it'll teach us that the work of Christ as our priest, as our sacrifice, it'll teach us the essential dilemma for man, for everyone. God is holy, and he demands that we be holy. We'll learn from all of those laws that are presented through Moses, and in particular the, the punishments that are doled out to lawbreakers, how impossible it is to earn favor with God, to make ourselves holy. If we, if we begin reading through Genesis, we're going to see a storyline. 
We'll see how God created a good world with the intent of peopling it with men and women who are made in his image to glorify him. And then comes this fall. But instead of destruction, mankind is allowed to live. And though sin now, it it infiltrates everything. And it explains the reason why we, we never can seem to get it just right. But we also see that there's a story of redemption. And it flows through the scriptures. And it, and it culminates in the arrival of the Messiah, the Redeemer. We'll see again and again how man fails to live up to God's holy and righteous standard. Yet, even with that, God nevertheless he sends word of a Messiah who is going to deliver we see how he'll send redeemers in the history of Israel at different times and, and how they bring them out of bondage, how they rescue, and, and how they then foreshadow the redeemer. How he provides all of these priests and, and all of these kings and they do their best and they keep failing and so on and, and prophets. But they foreshadow the Messiah who is the priest, the king, who is the prophet. And there's just so much more to point to. I I can't believe Jesus could have gotten through everything just on that little trip to Emmaus. I mean, there's Abraham, with whom God made a covenant to make him a blessing to all the nations. It's that covenant that Jesus fulfills. There's that scene of Abraham. God commands him, go and sacrifice your son. And then he stops Abraham from doing it. And it's the story, it's the message of God saying, someday my son will be that sacrifice. There's there's Joshua. Joshua leads God's people into the promised land. He wins these victories. uh, The name Jesus is merely the Greek form, the New Testament form of the name Joshua. So as we read Joshua, we're, we're reading what Jesus will do. There's another name that's the same as Jesus' name, Hosea. The prophet who goes and he buys back his wife out of slavery. There's Jesus in his work. Now, I haven't touched on all the prophecies and all the, the other prophets or the, or the Psalms that, that predict his, his coming and his sufferings. But the point is this. If we, if we just look at the Old Testament as kind of a collection you know, of some, of some laws and there's some kind of strange and weird stories and, you know, there's some obscure sayings you can't make any sense out of. Well, then, yeah, it's going to be a bore to read. You're just not going to be able to weigh, get, get too far into it. But if you interpret it through the lens of the redemption story of Jesus Christ, through the expectation of the Messiah who is to come, You'll you'll surprise yourself with the insights and the delights of saying, there's Jesus. Oh, there's his work. Oh, now now this all makes sense. I see how it's working towards that. You'll understand more fully your redemption that he has won for you. Indeed, I would dare say that your heart will burn in the same way as those two disciples testified as they listened to their unrecognized Messiah. Let's pray.
We thank you, our God, for our Lord Jesus Christ, who is throughout all the pages of your word in rich and mysterious ways. We thank you where you tell us in the New Testament all these stories, all of these passages and these things that we we read about, they were meant for us. We who now, who we didn't have to anticipate a Messiah, but look back and see the Messiah and see his work. All of these things were written for us. And so all the more we pray for your Holy Spirit, that as we open your word publicly and privately and wherever we turn in your pages, give us the eyes to see our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to see his wondrous work for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.